Good morning, church. My name is Danielle Couch, and I am a covenant partner here at First Pres. And I also have the honor of reading scripture this morning. And this morning, we continue our series in Mark as we read Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. The redemptive response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a total reversal of reality. Those who have been born again to a living hope in Christ are called to take up our crosses and follow Christ, loving the world as he has loved us. The grace of God alone can fuel disciples to faithfully follow Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God. Amen. Thank you, Danielle. Good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. What a joy it is to worship together this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you keep them open in Mark chapter 8? If you don't have Bibles, um, please be sure to... I'm going to use your... Pretty piano there for a second there. Um, Please be sure to uh, keep them open on your phone. We're going to unpack a significant passage today. The truth is that uh, Jesus bodily rose from the grave. In that historic reality, it transformed the cowardice of the disciples who abandoned Jesus on the night that he was betrayed to tremendous courage where these disciples ended up giving their lives for what they believed, courage unto death. I wonder in my own heart, why do we not see that same trajectory in the church today? The context of the passage that we read, uh, we have studied before at the beginning of our series, the, the Passover plan. And you'll remember when Jesus taught the first of three times on the trajectory of his own ministry. That contrary to the political expectations of a Messiah, Jesus would be one who was handed over and betrayed. That he would suffer unto death. He would be buried and rise from the grave. It was Peter, first of his disciples, to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus challenged him. He said, you set your mind on the things of this world and not on the things of God. As we approach this passage today, uh, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would touch our hearts, that we might set our minds on the things of the kingdom, that we might encounter the living, resurrected King to such a personal extent that we would count it a privilege to take up our crosses and follow him. This is a futile effort if you try to do it in your own flesh and strength. So let's go to the Lord of the Word and ask for His Spirit to bless our study. Let's pray. Lord, you certainly have a sense of humor choosing someone like me to preach a passage like this. Lord, I confess 
my own personal insecurity, prioritizing popularity over faithful proclamation of your word. We ask for your grace and your mercy. We long, Lord, to celebrate the reality of the accomplishment of the finished work of Jesus Christ, knowing that you have risen. We long to walk in a newness of life and we cannot do it in our own strength. Holy Spirit, please open the holy word of God, open our hearts, and we pray that seeds would be planted and roots would go deep and fruit for your kingdom would grow bountifully. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us, we pray. Amen. Grace invites us into this new way of living. It really reorients our understanding of reality. And today's passage has inspired some of the most fruitful work in kingdom history. People have taken this seriously and the spirit of God has touched their heart and nations have been reached. Cities have been transformed. Families have been restored. Marriages have been renewed. This passage when, when disciples want to follow Jesus and learn to desire taking up our cross more than the desires of this world, it, it's a revolutionary teaching. It's a simple structure that we're going to look at. It's a difficult direction that Jesus gives his disciples, but he, he gives definite promises. Jesus said, if, if you would find your life, if you desire to find your life, then you will take up your cross and follow him. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Jesus. Hey, there's four promises he gives that are definitely, uh, definitely for those who, who choose to desire this. And you see them, if you look in your passage, uh, it, it's verse 35, 36, 37, and 38. Right at the beginning of each uh, in the ESV, it says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit their own soul? It's true profit. For 37, what can a man give in return for his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me at the end of my my, uh, uh, my, my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will also be ashamed. The summary of those four different definite promises is really that, that Jesus will give you the life that you long for. You'll discover eternal and true profit and you'll care for your soul in a very healthy way, so much so that you'll have extreme joy when Jesus returns in glory. These are our desires. These are your desires and these are, are my desires. We, des we desire true life. We desire true joy. We desire true, true profit. We desire healthy souls. But what we don't desire is to deny ourselves. This is a completely countercultural teaching that gets right to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus to understand the resurrection reality and live faithfully in a, in a redemptive way. The word desire is, is significant. And Jesus uses it, if you look at your passage in 34, he calls the crowds to himself. He says, if anyone would come after me, the, the Greek word there for would come after, would is fellow. This is a word for desire. If anybody would desire to come after me, he repeats it again uh, in uh, verse 35. For whoever would save his life, whoever desires to save their life. You see, desire is significant because your desire drives your decisions. Jesus desired to be reconciled with you. That's why Jesus suffered. That's why he was rejected. 
That's why he died, so that he could be reunited with you and you could find life. He desired for you to have forgiveness. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one to two. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And when Jesus teaches on the cross in the context of this passage, he necessarily assumes that we understand that if we're gonna follow him, we will desire him more than anything else. And that includes experiencing suffering, experiencing rejection, experiencing even death for a greater good, a joy that is set before us. And Jesus, in fact, killed the desire to not go to the cross in the garden when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, if you're like me and you hear this, you say, well, that's all well and good, Mitchell, but I have desires that are kind of contrary to that. We have earthly desires, worldly desires, fleshly desires that don't fit uh, and have coherence with kingdom desires. Let me address the direction of those desires real quick through giving you an illustration of a pitcher plant. You see, Jesus promises that if we desire to follow him and we desire to have life and we kill those things that stand in opposition to that, that we will truly find life, care for our souls, experience profit and have uh, a true profit and have joy when the king returns. But we have these uh, misdirected desires, don't we? You know, the pitcher plant uh, is, is a picture right there. It's a, it's a uh, carnivorous plant. That means that it eats meat. And it does throw through these things called pitfall traps. And here's how they work. They're different than what you might uh, be familiar with, the Venus flytrap. It's like a mechanism when the fly lands, it like slowly closes. If you've ever watched a Venus flytrap, part of you is like, wow, a plant is eating a fly. And the other part of you is like, wow, that's a stupid fly because the plant is closing in on it and eating it. The pitcher plant is different than that because as you can see, a, 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 an insect will land on it for its sweetness. It's actually attracted to the nectar, the sweetness of the plant, and then traps it because the sweetness turns into stickiness. And as it goes into the pitfall trap, then the, the insect is consumed. It's a desire of the insect that is deceived by the sweetness and it leads to death. And humans often follow desires that seem really sweet, but they're misdirected and they lead to death. This has been the case since the beginning of time. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them explicit directions, clear communications. You can be fruitful, multiply, eat from any tree in the garden, uh, rule, subdue, and cultivate. Just do not eat from this tree in the midst of the garden. And what happened? It was Eve, it is recorded in Genesis 3, that she saw, she desired, and she took, and she ate. And that misdirected desire led to death because it was contrary than the teaching of the king, the Lord, who put them there. And it's not just Adam and Eve who, who illustrate this. It's, it's also people like uh, Samson. In Judges chapter 16, who saw Delilah, he desired Delilah, he took Delilah, same verbs, and death ensued, his own death, and the death of hundreds of others. It was King David who was on the roof of his palace when he was bathing in the middle of the day where he looked down and he saw Delilah. He saw Bathsheba. He desired Bathsheba. He took Bathsheba. And that misdirected desire led to the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and then countless soldiers, and then his own child. You see, misdirected desire that is attracted to the sweetness of our culture it ends up feeding the deceit of our hearts and, and leading to death. But there is a desire that leads to life. 
And we find more of, of what this looks like when we study this passage. If you look down at verse 35, he says, for whoever would, would save his life, whoever desires to save his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the gospels, you'll save it. So to lose your life for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus, that's when we really find it. But what does that mean? The word for life there is a specific Greek word, and you're familiar with it whether you know it or not. It's the word psyche. It's the word from which we get our word psychology, and it doesn't just mean life. This word means uh, identity. It's your very sense of secure selfhood. Now, this is significant because Jesus is basically saying if you want to really have a secure self, a true self, a, a, an identity that is secure, then you lose that for my sake and the kingdom and you'll actually find a secure identity, a true sense of self. This is the promise. It's not just, a, a, just like, hey, go and die and you'll live. I mean, almost, it's, it's more difficult to die every day for the gospel than it is to go somewhere and just be killed for the gospel. This daily taking up our cross and all of our decisions and all of our attitudes, what does that really look like? You see, we're a culture that, that prizes identity. We prize a sense of self, but it actually is an exact reversal of the kingdom. The world says that your identity is, is given to you by what you desire and the certain delineations of this culture. The gospel says that, that Jesus died and he rose again and he gives you a new identity and your desires are to be oriented from that. You see the distinction? You see, our culture wants to say you can find your identity in desiring to look good. If you desire a certain status, to live in a certain area, that then becomes your identity. Your success in your work or the, or the just awesomeness of your family. Maybe it's something as simple as humor. People think you're funny. I desire to be liked. I desire to be funny. Ha ha! Secure sense of self. As long as people think you're funny, right? It could even be religion. We're going to talk about how it can be sex, influence, or wealth. But the, 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 the teaching of Jesus is saying if you really want a secure identity, don't follow the desires of your deceived heart like the culture wants you to do. Lay those down. Kill them, no matter what the cost, socially and culturally, and follow Jesus and let the gospel give you an identity and reorder your desires through that. Man. But this word deny, I don't like this word. Do you like it? I can't stand it. I'm not much of a denier. I cope with anxiety by grazing. Like the opposite of denying myself, I just kind of snack on fruit and crackers and stuff. I don't like denying. Our culture, I'm with you. I like comfort, I like control, I like convenience, not a cross. It is not normal for the church to, to take up our cross, that is to, to face the rejection and the suffering and the death that comes with ordering our desires from our kingdom identity at the expense of, of, of cultural accommodation. We don't like that, I don't like that. It's not normal for the church, frankly and honestly, because it's not normal for the leaders of the church. And I indict myself first. 
and repent publicly of it. We have to take the definite promises of God more serious than the false and deceiving sweetness that our culture holds out as life. We gotta understand that only the work of Jesus gives us the secure self and the true identity that we long for, the healthy soul that we need to have in the, in the true prophet. I mean, the, the kind of prophet that's like eternal kingdom prophet that when Jesus comes back, we're not gonna hide our head in shame, but we're gonna joyfully exclaim that he reigns and we want him to see all the redemptive restoration that has come as fruit. You see, finding life is to lose it. We're willing losers for the gain of the gospel. We're willing losers for the sake of our Savior's name. That's what it says right here. Whoever loses his life, that is whoever loses his sense of self in our culture, whoever loses the sense of identity, for my sake and the gospel's sake, then you'll save it, then you'll find it. Now, I wanna wade into some waters with you. And I'm gonna start with a cultural diagnosis. We have a real problem with ascribing identity. And then I wanna really bring it home for this congregation. And then I wanna invite the culture in for a really frank dis discussion. First, the diagnosis, the delusion of cultural categories, the shifting identities. I don't think it could be more clear than what's happening at Freeman Coliseum. We have hundreds and hundreds of children that are fleeing persecution, they're fleeing death, they're fleeing threat and danger, and they're coming to the United States for refuge. These are children that are unaccompanied. And many people that I hear only refer to them as illegal, they only refer to them as asylum seekers, and they reject the very God-given gospel identity that people have as created in the image of God. Of course, we only have a gospel identity if our faith is in Jesus Christ. But we certainly have a biblical worldview identity that is greater than any nationality, any socioeconomic status. And it is inappropriate for Christians to look at children on the run for their life as anything other than image bearers who need restoration and love. Our hearts should be taken to Matthew 25 when Jesus says what you've done to the least of these you've done to me. But we are so confused in our cultural categories of our identity that we, like sheep who are led astray, just blindly go into, well our identity is what country we're from. Our identity is what geographical borders around us. Our identity is in what socioeconomic status that we have. So we use these cultural categories. These are children that the church should serve. And if you wanna serve, I have a link where you can work with Catholic Charities and get in there. But now it's just the diagnosis of the delusion. Now, the distinction. The distinction of a biblical worldview. It's, we, we uh, this congregation and, and most of our neighbors, what we find is, is a, a different kind of tension. That, that, that might speak to our 
political tension that we feel and the socioeconomic tension, but I think work hits a little closer to home. You're not what you do or where you live, but we live in a culture where people feel like they're defined by how successful they are. Their work, our identity is, is, is so fed by what we do that we have a permissive workaholic culture. That is, that we really believe we're equated to how successful we are. And if we're not equated, we feel less. And if we're not successful, we feel less than other people. We really believe that our true profit is found in the bottom line and how much money we make, how big the contracts are, how, how large the partners are, and the, the deep the pockets are of people who are investing. We find our life and our identity in the wealth and the works and the success of this world. Now, this is anti-kingdom because you don't have to look far in scripture to see that the most successful people in their work and wealth are not held up as people who understand the kingdom. You can go back to Solomon and you look at Ecclesiastes 2, focus on verses 10 to 11. All of it, Solomon says, he gave his heart everything his eyes desired. That was nothing. It was meaningless. Look at the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? Go sell everything. But he couldn't. That teaching was too hard. And Jesus himself would say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because we find our identity and our wealth and how successful we are at work. To really find a true sense of self, a true identity, real life, then we have to lay that down. Kill it and use everything God has given you to build kingdom. All the true profit goes to invest. It doesn't mean work is bad. It doesn't mean success is bad. It doesn't mean wealth is bad. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It becomes bad when you equate your life and your identity with how fruitful you are at work or how wealthy you are, how much influence you have, how big things are. Kill it. Take up your cross. It might mean that you aren't the top seller at work. It might mean you're, you might not be the most popular person in your zip code. But Jesus didn't cause disciples to be popular. Discipleship is costly. Take up your cross. The distinction of a biblical worldview, you're not what you do, it's an invitation for us to, to really die so we can learn to live. Now, if you look at the beginning of this passage, it, Jesus says, calling a crowd to him with his disciples, he began to teach. This isn't like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus took his disciples and he got away. He's like, hey guys, let me tell you what real blessedness is. This is Jesus giving real hard teaching and he says to everybody, he's like, hey, everybody, come on. I want you to hear this. Like, this is what it looks like to follow me, okay? 
And I don't think that there's a, there's a greater place of application for us to do that than the area of human sexuality. Okay, so we've got to first be honest that we're deluded a little culturally. Let's just be honest with that. We have a tendency to define identity more culturally, nationally, politically, socioeconomically. That we've got to be honest that there is a distinction between a biblical worldview and our cultural worldview, okay? Let's talk about something that's screaming out loud in our culture. God's word speaks gently. His created design is male and female. And those two are to come together. The essence of, of being an image bearer is male and female. Genesis 127. But we have to understand that our identity is not in our sexuality and it's not in our gender. We express our sexuality because God gave it to us, but it never becomes our identity. The sex that God assigns people at birth should be the desires of our heart, but we live in a fallen world and we seek often to have misdirected emotional and physical attraction that manifests itself in desires that go against the divine design. I have some books that I will go through and recommend, but for the sake of time, if you want to talk to me about those, email me. Some of y'all are very good at doing that anyway. <laughs> I want to talk about a few things because disciples need to understand how to orient our desires by the grace of Jesus Christ, particularly when it comes to human sexuality. The first thing we need to know is that we're all broken and we all need grace to begin again. I'm not lying to you when I say every week I talk to somebody who's sexually broken like me. I talk to men that are addicted to porn. I talk to uh, people that are struggling with sex outside of marriage, couples that are in this tension of living together and acting like they're married before they're actually married. I, I struggle with sexual brokenness in people's lives every week. And so, so to say that the specific sexual sins of a disordered desire outside of God's design, it, it's not something we throw stones at, it's something that we have a great equalizer and deep need for God's grace. That's why Jesus died, so that we can find forgiveness and reorder our desires. The second thing I want you to see is that, that grace is free. And no matter what your sexual brokenness is, God wants to redeem and forgive you. God wants to renew you. There is no sexual history that God can't turn and redeem. There is no sexual struggle that Jesus does not say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power can be made perfect in your weakness. But when we encounter the free grace of Jesus, we, we see that, that actually discipleship is very costly. Because when you're a Jesus follower and you desire and struggle with pornography, you have to kill that. When you're a Jesus follower and your identity is in womanizing or, or manizing or just how the amount of relationship with inappropriate flirting, whether that's emotional or physical, that too dies because that's a disordered desire. And likewise, if you're a Christian and you struggle with same-sex attraction, 
or you have questions of gender and you desire even to be something other than what God assigned you at birth, that too must be brought under the lordship of Christ because the pitcher plant lie of our society offers something that seems very sweet, but it's actually deceit that leads to death. Only God's design gives life. So grace is free, but discipleship is costly. And in the contemporary issues right now that are surrounding our culture must be approached with tremendous humility and grace, unconditional love, but uncompromised truth. And we tell the truth to people we love, but if we share truth without love, then we are just not going to be heard. And you know what the greatest testimony of truth is in our society? Not people yelling or writing anonymous stuff, but it's a community of believers who know that their bodies are not their own, but we've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And so we have the opportunity as kingdom citizens that have been transplanted into the kingdom of God's beloved son through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, to kill the desires of our flesh with the power of the spirit and to reorder those because we know we have a greater identity. Our identity is not in our desires. Finally, we can repent and return. And we know that resurrection reverses the reality of our disordered desires. It's in real, authentic community where we find this level of redemption and restoration. I want to share with you a quote by a guy named Sam Albury. Uh, Sam Albury is, uh, you might have read uh, him, he writes prolifically on the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, he's been on RZIM, he's written several books, but uh, probably the most significant book he wrote is called, Is God Anti-Gay? And Sam himself is a gay man that is celebrate, and he practices celibacy And he's actually a pastor, an apologist, an author, and a speaker. And I want to read you an excerpt from his book, Is God Anti-Gay? He says this, the fact is that the gospel demands everything out of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted in their life uh, quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspiration, it is likely, listen, it is likely that that person has not really started following Jesus at all. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice, he writes. He says, denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It's saying no to your deepest sense of who you think you are for the sake of Christ. It is laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it, and through his death, he bought it. You want to find your life? your identity, your true sense of self, take up your cross. You might be rejected by the culture, by certain aspects of the community. I tell you what, I care so much about what you people think of me that I almost didn't preach this. But I had to kill that because I know there's a greater profit in this world than you liking me. The greater prophet is that we believe that Jesus really rose from the grave and that his teaching changes everything. The greater prophet is that we are a relentless band of lovers 
who are transformed by the grace of God, understanding that true profit is not that I look good, feel good, comfortable, or convenient, but that we carry our cross and we die so that others live. True profit comes when we see everything God has entrusted to us as a vehicle for kingdom advancement so that we can have true joy. That is not a a, a shame that comes when the king returns, but it is a glorious excitement because we know Jesus Christ has come and he will come again. Oh, we have a greater identity. It's so beautiful. God loves you so much. And what he wants to give you is so much more significant than popularity. It's so much more powerful than being the most successful businessman or woman. What God wants to give you is so much more glorious than you can ask or imagine. But you have to trust him. This is why Jesus came for believers. He came to live so that he could die. So that those who are trying to find life in places of this world could repent and come to him and find life. He was clear in his teaching that he came in a place of humiliation but he would eventually go to exaltation that is he would suffer he'd be betrayed and he would die but he would rise again and ascend into heaven and his followers well if you want to taste the exaltation and the glory of the gospel then you too have to enter into a place of humiliation no matter what the cost we come humbly to this table we come in faith We don't come because we're members of this church. We come because we're followers of Jesus. We come because we believe that we are sinners in need of grace, that we're all broken and need healing. And we know that we find it in in the work of Jesus because it was the night of it he was betrayed that he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you, given for you to be made whole. And then after supper, in the same way, he took the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is the blood of my new covenant poured out for you. That when you drink it and when you eat it, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and he will come again. So we come to this table in our brokenness to to feast on his wholeness. We come in our poverty to feast on the riches of his grace. We come in our death to taste his life. We come in our sin to taste and feast upon his forgiveness. And while Jesus is locally present at the right hand of the Father, he is spiritually present in this meal. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he wants to nourish all in this room who believe. And if you're not a Christian in here today, we want to talk to you. And we want to introduce you to Jesus. We're going to ask you to refrain from this table. This is the king's table. But if you belong to him, come feast on his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, the power of the gospel for all who believe. Lord God, we come confessing our confused identity and cultural categories. We come confessing that we have not, in the ways that you have taught us, lived out of a biblical worldview in this world that has such enticing pleasures to offer. And we come grateful 
knowing that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would set apart this bread and this cup from its common and ordinary use and you'd be pleased by the power of your Holy Spirit to nourish us with your grace. Help us to taste your life. Help us to taste your forgiveness. Help us to taste the power of the gospel so much so that it reorders our desires and that we would desire, Lord, to kill anything that's in opposition to the identity that we have in you as children of the King. Lord, do this marvelous work. You are a marvelous God, we pray in Jesus' name.